electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. The big splurge seems like nothing can stop the American shopping spree. Not rising rates, inflation, or instability around the world. How will the markets and the Fed deal with this very confident consumer? We'll debate. Plus, semi-slump, the sector getting hit as the Biden administration announces new export restrictions on AI chips to China. We'll break down how this will impact our already frayed relations with Beijing. And later, stream interrupted. Shares of Netflix falling hard over the last three months. Will earnings tomorrow remove the chill on the stock? The options action on that straight ahead. I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening for Melissa Lee. On the desk tonight, we have Tim Seymour, Garen Fireman, Bono and Eisen, and guest trader Stuart Kaiser. He's head of equity trading strategy at City. And we begin with the unbreakable consumer. We've heard from so many CEOs about how spending is buckling. But the data is telling a completely different story. Retail sales last month jumping 0.7 percent, almost half a percent above estimates. Retail stocks ripping for the second straight day. The strength coming even as yields continue to rise. The 10-year getting back to the highs hit last week, which takes yields back to levels not seen in nearly 17 years. So how do we go from a tapped-out consumer and a market gasping for air from painful rates to this. I mean, Tim, it's pretty unbelievable. And I know when I see the retail sales data yeah. from the government every month, I know it's lagging. I know it's a little imperfect when it comes to a survey. But it's what we have right now. And it was way stronger than expected. And it's not lagging that much. First of all, welcome. Great to have you here. Uh, great to have Stuart here. <laughs> and, you know, my view is, first of all, the consumer with a job is proven to be much more resilient. What's what's striking about this number is, again, if you look at the retail sales, the control factor, the re- essentially element of this number this is on pace for a six plus percent GDP third quarter. N- nobody called for this. And, and so if you think about, you know, Powell's going to speak tomorrow. Or there's going to be other Fed speak. Um, the Fed, we know, is 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 not just concerned. I mean, the Fed is well aware of the resiliency of the labor market. We've talked about this. Every number we get, whether it's jobless claims or even a, a more backward looking payroll number, tells you there's been zero weakness in this job market. Um, retail stocks, meanwhile, if you look at the XRT, which I don't think is a great barometer, but if you take outside of Walmart, but you look at the dollar gens, the dollar trees, we know that the lower end of the consumer, look at Target, um, those that have had a tough, tough part with their mix, but then apparel and discretionary. Retail's been bombed out. And so if you think about it, it's not, you know, we, we look at the markets and I think markets might even make some new highs between now and year end. Um, but retail sales have been one of the dynamics that have given you some sense that the consumer is in a much better place than we think. So, uh, you know, I look at 10 years. This, this was a closing high on the 10 year today. Um, so at 483, um, the fact that the 10 year sold off a point and you had equities hold serve tells you there are parts of the market 
that are way overdone to the downside. And I think that's part of what we're seeing here. Karen, you, you're invested in a lot of consumers names, consumer names. When you look at the retail sales, does it give you confidence going forward? Does, do you look at it and have some question marks? I mean, how do yeah. you square all this with, with all these pressures that we're facing? Right. Well, we were talking a little bit in the green room. How, does it give me confidence? It doesn't give me great confidence in the numbers, actually, to mm-hmm. be that far off. I hope they're right. That would be good. You know, to Tim's point, the space has really been bombed out. So this this is very contradictory to what we're, what investors are expecting. I don't know if, you know, as the quarter went on, we did see gas prices actually start to fall meaningfully. We know that when gas prices go up, that hurts the consumer. And um, so that's a little bit of a benefit. The rest, I, I can't exactly explain, except for they have jobs. Right. And sticky wages. Maybe it's not, you know, it's still inflating wages. Just the rate of inflation is slower. Yeah, jobs definitely seems to be the key. I mean, Barwin, there was a Deloitte survey that was out today, too, and talking about consumer spending and what they were planning to do come holidays. Yes, that is some time off. But of the consumer survey, this Deloitte survey showed, I think, 17% had student loans that were resuming these payments. But less than half of them were actually going to change their spending habits as a result of that, which surprised me. Yeah, although, you know, I think the surveys are a bit tricky. You know, it's like, what are people saying versus what are people doing, Fair. right? And then when you start to drill down into the numbers, I think it's a bit more sparse than we're kind of giving credit credit to. So you look at electronics and you look at clothing. Those were actually down just right. shy of a percent, right? And those, to me, are... Th- I would think there would be a lot more confidence when you're spending on those type of goods, particularly on the electronics, because that's a bit more not durable, but at least like a lasting type of good. Um, you look at some of the uh, some of the like higher end retailers, RH, LVMH. You've seen how those shares have traded down. So I do think there are still some concerns and headwinds there. I think we had just gotten so negative, and I think the two previous panelists have already spoken to it. The, the stocks had probably gotten a little overdone because we had taken so, the expectations down so much. With that said. The equity price that we're paying now is a forward-looking metric, right? And so if you don't think that there's headwinds facing the consumer coming down, again, we've mentioned delinquencies. We've mentioned uh, an uptick in credit card balances. We've mentioned an uptick in rates. All of those things are headwind for the consumer. And right now, we do see that the consumer has some leverage in terms of UAW and Teamsters and being able to push wages higher. But at some point, that is going to come to an end. And when that capitulates, I don't really want to be in this particular sector of the market. Yeah, it seems like we're all a little skeptical, perhaps, of what these numbers show and what that means going forward. Stuart, what's City's view of the consumer right now when you're trying to put all these data points together and you're trying to square up what's happening with equities, too? Yeah, I mean, I largely agree with the views around the table. I mean, the market's tried to pre-trade this weakness in the U.S. consumer and the weakness in the economy multiple times this year, and they've, they've gotten frustrated with it. I, I think if I take a step back and I'm a, and a worker, I see jobs are plentiful and I see, you know, my peers getting raises or, or fighting for them, and those things are going to give me confidence that, I, confidence that I can find a job and that my wage growth is going to be positive. So I think that's what you're seeing in the data. I mean, our credit card spending data looks weak. It looks weak at the headline and it looks weak, you know, weak, weak below the surface, but it's just not realized in the government economic data. So, you know, I think our view is if you're worried about the U.S. economy, the consumer is where we need to see the weakness. And as long as that payrolls data stays strong, um, you know, our view is you can run long equities. And the fact is that's happened. And, and also, this was a positive revision to the, up, the previous month yes, as well. This point. wasn't Good just point. a beat. It was a beat at a raise, so to speak. So I think, you know, from our perspective, the growth data remains solid. And if the growth data remains solid, you can get to run long equity risk. Can I ask him? Yeah. You're the boss. I mean, no, you get to yeah, yeah, go um, for it. So when you look at your data versus the government's data, how confident are you in your data being closer to what's actually happening than the government? 
It's a great question, Karen, because a lot of third-party providers, so to speak, have data that you know shows weakness or strength that isn't reflected in the government data. I mean, I think, I think on a on an average basis, let's say a three-month moving average basis, you'd expect the credit card data to, to tighten up, you know, pretty well to the government data. We we were expecting a much weaker print today on retail sales than we got. So that either means our data is not indicative, or we're ultimately going to see retail sales actually you know come back to us. So. You know, we have confidence that, you know, we have a lot of credit cards out there and, and, and we have obviously a very good view on, on the spending that's there. So, you know, we're a little concerned about where the consumer is going, without a doubt. It's interesting. I mean, when you look at the weaker parts in the report, um, Tim, and you see appliances, electronic spending, that's lower. Right. A, a company like a Home Depot or a Lowe's, they will often try to tell me, well, it's not discretionary if you're going to buy a washing machine. If it breaks, you have to buy it. But so many people went through these replacement cycles that, that they're not buying them now. And that's not a reflection of the consumer. Do yeah. you buy into that? Well, I am buying into if it breaks, you buy. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, there's no appliances. How did they get to be disposable? And I feel awful about this as a citizen of the world, but it does seem to be cheaper to buy a new one. Um, I, I, again, I would look at the breakdown of where I think the consumer has shown some signs of weakness and where I, like, we know this from a Target. We know this from a Walmart. We know this from Amazon, that the, that the mix in terms of uh, discretionary spend has moved more towards services, more towards experiences, more towards restaurants. I mean, the restaurant numbers in here, yeah. restaurants and bars were, were very strong. And up, up more than 9 percent for the year, yeah. I think. And, 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 and meanwhile, you would think that restaurants are getting hit everywhere. We hear about the waging increases at minimum wage at fast food in California. That's going national, folks. Um, the dynamic, I think, around where you, look, I think discretionary, and I continue to, you know, as a guy that was short Nike for a while, I covered that. I, I'm, I've been short Lulu for, you know, the last six weeks. I, I just, I don't think the multiples here um, are, are warranted. That's, that's the big thing. But then I look at other parts of the consumer and I look at what's happened to staples, you know, and I look about consumer staples. So I'm not talking about, I'm talking about things that people buy and you'd think they'd be giving some ground and granted these are supposed to be resilient. That's what they are. Um, but these are down 20 to 30%. So I just back to this market retail sales from the middle of August, when rates started to shoot up, the XRT is not really the fairest barometer, but it's what we're talking about today. Underperformed the S and P by seven and a half percent over six weeks. Um, and, and over the last three days, you've had a massive move. And again, things like, you know, Children's Place and, 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 and Dick's Sporting Goods and, and Macy's. I mean, these are things that have been destroyed. And I think that's part of what today's move feels like. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Non-store retailers didn't really talk about that section, but I think it's worth bringing up uh, one of the stronger reports up about 1.1%. So that's online. Let's bring in CNBC Steve Leesman. I mean, Steve, we talked about this earlier today. How does a Fed handle this consumer seemingly unstoppable as rates keep rising? Maybe they're not moving because it's expensive to do so but they're still buying everything else. Well, I think the word we keep hearing from the Fed is patience. There's, there's a couple camps at the Fed. Uh, th there's a smaller camp of folks who say for sure we want to hike. There's another camp of folks who say, um, I could hike, but right now I want to take some time to, uh, to look at the data and, and, and be patient about it. And there's a third camp that says we've, we're there. We're at the peak rate right now. Um, and I think the data is going to dictate uh, where the Fed ultimately ends up. And by that, I mean, if this strength continues, which is no guarantee, well, and I, I want to offer some support to those who said, you know what, this data is indeed subject to revisions. Um, the trouble with it is we've had several months now of really strong consumer data. So even if it is revised downward, I doubt all of the strength or the surprising strength is going to be revised away. So what the market has done is essentially take out a hedge on another Fed rate hike.
but push that hedge ahead. And so what you see is that not much of a bet on a rate hike in November, a bit more in December. And now the new thing, Courtney, is that January is now in play. You look at that probability, it's about 50%. It's been a bit higher as the day has gone by, 51, 52. And that's a new thing that people had not really thought about the idea that there would be a rate hike in January. They kind of were thinking that, hey, if they didn't do it this year, they'd be done. The other interesting aspect is that they push ahead when they think cuts will come in. It used to be some folks thought in June or even May, and now it's more July. So I think the effective tool here now, Courtney, to think about is really the Fed holding. And I guess I said this 20 years ago when I was covering Greenspan, but neutral is a gear for the Fed. Staying high at that rate is doing something, as Harker recently said. So I think that's how they react, is to be patient right now, and then if they if they get the strength of the economy with a fall of inflation, I think they're going to hold. But if this strength continues and it shows up at inflation, well, then maybe you got to think about the Fed hiking again. I mean, the inflation is obviously so interesting, but it's something that consumers have been dealing with for so long. We know it exists. Maybe it's getting better in some areas, but really still taking it in stride. It does seem like many of our traders have said here today that jobs are the key for consumers. And as long as they have a job, they're feeling confident enough to spend what they need to spend. Do you think that that's true as well? I mean, does job trump inflation? I think that's true. And I think I would add to that two other aspects. One is that um, they underestimated the amount of pandemic savings. We know that because the government revised that higher. And then I think they overestimated how quickly it would be gone and its importance. Um, I don't know about anybody else on the uh, on, on, on the panel there, but if I had a buck for every time somebody told me that the pandemic savings were run out and the consumer was about to crash, I have a few bucks in my pocket right now. That has been a prevailing view. Um, and it's caused me and a lot of people on the street, Courtney, to continuously revise up not just this quarter or the current quarter, but the next quarter. And that's something that's going to happen, I think, in the next couple of days. Uh, you look at the, the weekend Friday reports that come out from the forecasters, and they're going to say, you know what? I don't think the fourth quarter is a 1% quarter. And I can go back and show you the number of times that over the past year, Everybody thought the next quarter was going to be a zero or a 0 0.5 or a 0 0.3. But that, in fact, the quarter we're in now that the Atlanta Fed says is a 5.4% quarter, we began in our rapid update as a 0.3% quarter. You talk about a revision and a surprise. And getting to a point I think that Tim Seymour made earlier, look at the 10-year note. And when you look at it and you go back to mid-July, it was the July 18th retail sales report for the month of June that fired up this whole rise in rates. So people say it was issuance. Yes, it was. But ultimately, it was also substantially a rethink of the growth path of the U.S. economy and how high and how long the Fed was going to have rates at, at, at the current level that caused the rethink and for bond yields to shoot higher. So many surprises in the last couple of months here. And then, of course, today with this number. Steve, thanks so much for joining us here tonight. We're going to keep talking Pleasure. about this a bit, talk about the Fed's major consumer challenge. We're going to bring in Paul McCulley. He's PIMCO's former chief economist, and he now teaches at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Thanks so much for being here with us, Paul. I mean, you heard Steve, so let me just give you an open floor to get started. What do you think about what we heard today about the consumer? And if that changes anything that we're going to hear from the committee at the next meeting, maybe even what we might hear from Powell on Thursday when he speaks. 
it's hard to agree with, disagree with what my friend Steve just said. The consumer is strong, period. We can have a discussion about why and wherefore. I think jobs and the fact that we have so many uh, of households locked into wonderfully low interest rates are the one-two punch for the consumer. But from the standpoint of where the Fed is, I think uh, uh, President Harker from Philadelphia put it really nicely when he said that the Fed can do nothing, but doing nothing is doing something. And that's not just a riddle. I think it is reality because we've had an inverted yield curve for the last year which is the marketplace uh, persistently saying, yeah, the Fed may have a little bit more to go, but then they're going to ease quickly on the other side. And I think what we're doing right now is reversing the easing on the other side. So the Fed being on hold resolutely, not hiking, not cutting, effectively is giving us a bare re-sloping uh, uh, of the yield curve, a bare disinversion. Professor Paul, it's Tim Seymour. Uh, you were my first economist on Wall Street back in the day. I remember it fondly. Um, you say in your notes that the economy is showing the contours of a soft landing, and yet, again, retail sales today today don't show any landing at all. Um, can you t explain the parts of the economy that you are concerned about or at least do seem to be uh, decelerating? I think when you look at the retail sales in isolation, you could say, no landing. But when you're looking at the overall mosaic uh, of data, I think we are seeing a landing or a normalization, if you will, post the pandemic. And most importantly, we've seen the supply side of the economy respond, uh, both from the standpoint of bottlenecks, but also the uh, uh, labor force participation rate. So we're seeing uh, that uh, normalization, which could also be called a soft landing. And also, I think it's important to note that we're seeing disinflation in wages, and that's a key part uh, of the soft landing story. What we're not seeing is a sharp deceleration in job growth. So people may not be getting outside raises, but they're getting jobs and keeping jobs. And I think that is the sturdy portion of our economy, and there's every reason to expect it to continue sturdy, uh, it will decelerate, but nothing precipitous. I think that's one of the things that we in the marketplace really have to get our arms around is there not going to be a precipitous slowdown. It's going to be incremental. Paul, you said earlier that do, doing nothing is doing something. Steve Leisman talked about the possibility of the rate hikes increasing as we're looking at the January meeting. Do you believe that that will not happen at that point? Or are you talking about doing nothing now, later? What's your forecast for the possibility of hikes going down the road? I, I don't think it's going to happen in January. Uh, I do think that the Fed is going to be on hold in a, in a couple weeks' time. Uh, and when I refer to doing nothing, we have a five and three eighths Fed funds rate. That's the policy rate. Just keeping it there will tend to pull up the entire yield curve. You saw that in the two year, obviously, day. It's, you know, cl closing in on five and a quarter, but that's still below five and three eighths. So I think if the data flow suggests that the Fed quote unquote, should uh, tighten again uh, in January, the marketplace will front run that in a nanosecond and do the Fed's tightening work for us. 
uh, and would still give us an incredibly flat curve. I put a huge amount of emphasis on the inverted yield curve because it gives the Fed a lot of room to let the market do its work while it just sits there at five and three eighths. Fascinating stuff. Professor Fall, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. We're going to go ahead and trade this around the table. Stuart, you were doing a lot of nodding, so I'm going to give you the first comment. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I agree. The, the, the inverted yield curve, I think, is a huge issue right now. Um, a lot of folks, when that curve starts to steepen, think this is a pro-cyclical signal. Um, but the work we've done shows when you're starting from inverted, steepening is actually actually not the uh, not what you're hoping to have happen. So I think that's a big issue. And the other thing I wish I would ask him is, how do you define a soft landing? Mm. Because... Soft landing back in January meant a shallow recession. You know, now soft landing seems to mean to mean something else. But I think, look, the single biggest investment theme this year, and I think it continues, is just a, is positive surprises to consensus growth expectations. And I think, you know, we've gotten distracted by all the event risks. And, you know, frankly, if we would just stayed focused on the fact that growth continues to come in way better than expected consistently now for almost nine or ten months, I think people's, you know, sentiment towards the markets would have been a lot different. I also think that the bar going into this earnings season is so low. And as you said, I mean, we people have marked down. There's been EPS revisions downward. Look, we've had an earnings recession. It, it may be time where I think the analyst community is going to come in and say, you know, this was better than expected. And, and that's part of it's all about relative expectations going into this earnings season. Um, Anyway, by the way, Professor Paul, he must have the best hair in the professor's <laughs> lounge. I was at, thinking at about Georgetown. that, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's proven. It's stellar. Stellar. It's well, job. coming up, an earnings alert on United Airlines. Shares dropping after reporting results. The numbers out of that quarter, that's up next. Plus, Nomia Kalpa from Moynihan, the Bank of America CEO, weighing in on bonds after delivering an earnings beat. But one of our traders wasn't loving his answer. More on that when Fast Money Returns are back into. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We're getting some developing news on the vote for Speaker of the House. Emily Wilkins has the details. Emily, what's going on now? 
Hey, Gartney. Well, earlier today, uh, Jim Jordan, of course, came short of getting enough votes for the gavel. We was said that he expected to have another vote tonight, but he just exited a room where he was for several hours trying to work through the issues with some of the holdouts and said he's not going to have a vote until tomorrow morning. And this is just going to give him time to try and talk to some of those members who voted against him, try and figure out if there's a way that he can negotiate or if they can get to some sort of agreement. There are a lot of concerns right now. Some of them are with Jordan specifically some of his hardline stances, but there are other concerns just about how this process has played out. There are still a lot of members who are very frustrated that it only took eight members of the, of the, of the Republican caucus to oust Kevin McCarthy. They were upset that Steve Scalise, they feel like he didn't get a fair shake. And now they have a lot of questions with Jordan. But Jim Jordan said that he's not going to be forming a coalition with Democrats, that Republicans are going to power through and get this done. And we'll see tomorrow if he's made any progress. Courtney? Emily, thank you very much. Hopefully you can get some rest, too. This uh, sounds like you're in for the long haul here. <laughs> well, meantime, an earnings alert on United Airlines, the company beating top and bottom line estimates for the third quarter, but shares dropping on weaker than expected guidance. Phil Lebeau joins us now with more details. Hi, Phil. Hey, Courtney, uh, that guidance is really the issue for United, and we'll learn more tomorrow during the conference call and during our exclusive interview with Scott Kirby on Squawk Box. Let's first go over the Q3 numbers. Not a huge surprise here that they did better than expected. Remember, the guidance, not the guidance, but the estimates on the street have been moving lower over the last several weeks. They earned 365 versus the street at 335. Revenue, that's record revenue, by the way, at $14.48 billion. Having said that, the cost side of the equation for United, that's the real issue, especially in the fourth quarter. Fuel costs, yeah, they were down 11% in Q3, but in Q4, they're going to be moving higher. That's not a surprise. Everybody in the airline industry is facing that. The other issue for United, when you look at their guidance for the fourth quarter, is the overall cost equation of what they're expecting. Because of that, their guidance for earnings per share, they're now expecting to earn between a buck fifty and a buck eighty a share. The streets at two hundred six, and the cost per seat mile. Here's the real issue, and we're already seeing some analyst notes about this. They're expecting an increase of three and a half to five percent. The street right now is at an increase of one point three percent. Is it the labor contracts? Is it the maintenance costs, which are hitting all of the airlines right now as they're dealing with some real problems on the maintenance side of the business? We'll find out tomorrow morning. Their full year earnings per share, they are now expecting, if you take what they're doing in the fourth quarter or expected to do, the implied earnings for the full year will be $9.55 to $9.85 a share. The last guidance from United back in July was $11 to $12 a share. So there you see why the shares are under pressure, down now more than 4%. Don't forget, Scott Kirby, exclusive tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Courtney, back to you. Thank you very much, Phil. We will be tuning in to hear from Mr. Kirby directly. In the meantime, Bono, and what do you make of these results? I mean, clearly it seems like that guidance way far off from the prior guidance when you look at what's implied. Yeah, 965 to 985 down from 11 or 12. That's going to that's gonna take a lot of it's work. It's going to do it, sales. right? We saw a similar type of price action out of Delta, actually. And even though these guys are, are suffering but still knocking the cover off the ball on the top line, what really concerns me are the domestic carriers. If you're seeing this type of pain in the international uh, carriers or, or those that have international capabilities, and we've seen a tick back up in demand for those. We've seen a tick back up in, inter, uh, in, in business international travel, transatlantic travel. That's been some of the pockets of profitability. I think the domestic carriers are in for a rough one when they, when they report. Yeah, great point, Tim. I tell you, I, I think airlines look interesting here. I, I realize that 
there's a lot of reasons to be doubtful that airlines can be efficient players. I also look at, you know, the capacity growth year over year, and it's still, I think, higher than the street wants to see. Uh, the cost side of it is a big deal. I think, I think the analyst community, maybe less so than the investor community, is worried about oil prices and fuel prices and, and, and are just imputing. Um, analysts haven't raised that. They can't raise it necessarily. It's almost like a mechanical thing. At some point, you're going to see them upgrade the fuel costs. But the market can see, and my view is that oil prices stay here. So I don't think it helps airlines. I look at UAL, though, having traded all the way back down to the bottom of this range. And I also hear them talk about their second best domestic uh, demand of all time in terms of revenue side of their business. And, and I, I just think that their business remains strong. So if they if they can get control of the cost base, um, I think airlines look interesting. As I say, you don't you don't own them. You you trade them. And, and I think right now you're a trader. Yeah. And those cost numbers were interesting. Phil pointed out, too. Well, there's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Bank earnings rolling in and Karen's eyeing Bank of America's bond portfolio. What she's watching in the name and what the CEO had to say next. Plus, geopolitical tensions heating up as Putin arrives in Beijing. All while Tim Cook makes a surprise visit with iPhone sales slumping. We're surrounding the China trade ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bank of America shares up over 2% after an earnings beat. The company posting better than expected interest income fueled by higher rates and loan growth. But those higher rates are a double-edged sword for the bank. They're sitting on $131 billion worth of unrealized maturity portfolio losses right now. CEO Brian Moynihan had this to say about that issue this morning. Basically, two years ago plus, we made a decision to put some of that money to work, and we basically split it into two pieces, a short-term piece and a long-term piece. So in the aggregate, 47% of our securities and cash we hold is in really short-term, overnight type of investments, and 53% and is long-term. And that's in the held maturity portfolio because those marks we knew would come, and we then don't have to take them through capital, and they pulled apart. These are government-guaranteed securities, so uh, the team's done a good job of managing it. What do you think, Karen? You're a bit in, in, incensed about this. You yeah. think they've done a good job managing I mean, two this? years ago, we made a decision to bet against everything the Fed was saying. We're going to raise, 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 raise again and again and again. We're hawkish. And, okay, just because we knew we wouldn't have to mark them, that doesn't mean they're just as valuable as they were when they put them on. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, this hit to... Um, this hit to their value, if they had to mark it, is enormous. To be fair, on the other side, they did issue debt at that time, not nearly as much of, of what they bought, but and that's down. So they, that would be sort of a counterbalance, but not nearly enough. And so it's just amazing to be in a portfolio that size that you would actually be making this bet long term in the face of the, in the face of the Fed telling you again and again. And I mean, to their credit, they have a they have a very sticky deposit base. Mm -hmm. If they didn't, this would be a very different story. They do. They have, you know, they're a gigantic bank, millions and millions of consumers. But in terms of portfolio management, 
This is but, a this is the worst of the G Do you and, think? The, yeah. But do you think that this is at the core of the underperformance of the Bank of America? Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. You, and, you, and therefore, and I don't I don't know how much you know on a relative to their peers. In other words, where where Where's does Jamie stand? Where does, uh, where's, where's, your, where's your buddy well, he Jamie could ask, stand? Jamie. So for example, they had 139 billion dollars of unrealized losses at Bank of America. Uh, J.P. Morgan had $34 billion. Okay, so that's a very, very different, you know, they made a very, very different bet. And uh, it shows. For Bank of America, a lot of the metrics are fantastic, right? right? But this price to book, it's kind of a, is it, is it, it is, it's an actual book that they could say, yeah, it's this much. But really, if they had to mark, they don't, I understand. That book isn't really what they say. So that's why this stock has been really cheap on so many metrics. It should be. You know, Bonwin, Mike Mayo says it was an okay quarter, but it was short of J.P. Morgan and Citi's results. And then you look at Goldman, both Goldman and Bank of America beat nearly across the board. But if you compare it year over year, a lot of Goldman's, Goldman's metrics were actually lower, while Bank of America's were higher. When you look at these banks, what's your summation here? Would you dig into any of these? I think that they are from complete cut from completely different cloths. Sure. So, so with Goldman... The reason why I'm willing to continue to invest in that stock is because I always expect them to exhibit some type of trading acumen. This is the antithesis of this. Okay. Essentially, they're saying we can afford to make this mistake because we don't have to take the marks. Right. So, I, again, but, and to Karen's point, FRB got in the situation because they didn't have the deposit base and had to shore up liquidity. So when I'm looking at a bank and I'm looking at someone that's managing capital, I, I, I still am going to give you a demerit for com coming up short in terms of how you are using that capital and deploying that capital. That is really at the lifeblood of what a financial institution is. And so, yes, I, I, on one hand, I do, I do understand the, str the strategy behind saying we don't have to take these marks. These are hold the maturities. But what's the opportunity cost of having to to do that. And that is why they're going to continue to trade at a discount, in my opinion. Fair enough. All right. Well, coming up, all the headlines out of China, geopolitical tensions front and center. As Russia's Vladimir Putin arrives in Beijing, what his visit could mean for the two countries. And it's not just politics. Tim Cook making a surprise visit as iPhone 15 sales see a rough start. So can Tim turn it around? The details from Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing near the flat line after a pretty volatile day while Treasury yields jumped after the hot retail sales data. The Dow and S&P virtually unchanged with the Nasdaq losing a quarter of a percent. Some more after hours movers, interactive brokers reporting a beat on the top and bottom line. J.B. Hunt reporting an earnings and revenue miss. Those stocks down by about 4 percent. And semi stocks getting hit today. NVIDIA, AMD and ASML all dropping as the Biden administration tightens restrictions on China, making it harder for the Chinese to purchase advanced AI chips from U.S. companies. The move is set to close loopholes in the existing export controls and will make it harder for China to buy existing or new products. Tim, this wasn't entirely unexpected. It's sort of tightening something that was already there. NVIDIA shares jumped all around on this. Uh, ultimately, though, you know, closing formidably lower for, for a stock that size. I, I, there's a lot of different ways to look at NVIDIA, um, both in the microcosm of today's news, in the macro of AI and the earnings visibility they have. And as Karen always points out, if they tell you they're going to do this, they're going to do a lot more than this. And, and, and I don't think this news is significant for NVIDIA today. 
Uh, you know, they get 20% or less of their revenues from, from China. Of, of that, half of it comes essentially in the auto compute part that's maybe under. And at some point, NVIDIA is so good at adjusting um, and make, they'll make a chip that will adjust to the standards. But, but when you think about the bigger picture of what's going on between the U.S. and China and the semiconductor war and the dynamics with Taiwan involved here, look, be scared, be really scared if you're a company that relies on semis that have anything to do with going through China or Taiwan. And that's where the U.S. government is scared. And that's, that's not changing today. Back to, is NVIDIA expensive or cheap? I'll leave that for the, the analysts that really cover that sector. I, I don't think today's news on NVIDIA is, is a game changer. I look at NVIDIA, the stock, and I look at the underperformance of the semiconductors as a group. And as a market participant, I watch that. I care about that. And that sometimes could be independent of what today's news is. It's just kind of a message. Semis have actually outperformed for the better part of uh, you know, a month. They've given up ground over the last week and a half. You have to watch that as a market participant. And NVIDIA spokesperson said today, I believe there was no material financial impact in the short term from this decision. The long term, though, a bit of a question mark. Well, as the U.S. amps up its chips restrictions in China, we're going to continue this. And China is welcoming Russian President Vladimir Putin to Beijing for the 10th year anniversary of its Belt Road initiative. China has already invested more than a trillion dollars into global infrastructure and accumulated nearly 150 partner nations. Our next guest warns, though, the initiative's new plans could be a formidable issue for the U.S. So let's bring in CNBC contributor DeWardrick McNeil. He's also the managing director and senior policy analyst at Longview Capital. DeWardrick, thank you so much for being here with us. I, I guess just sort of lay out your theory or your thesis right now about the, the new initiative for Belt Road China and what it means for the U.S. Why should we be worried about this? Uh, certainly. I'd also love to come back to the NVIDIA chips conversation because sure. I have uh, some slight uh, points I would like for Tim to consider. But with respect <laughs> to BRI, listen, I think that we know that this is an initiative that was uh, very much dear to Xi Jinping and his desire to really sort of show China's influence. And a lot of that over the last 10 years was in sort of old, old infrastructure, uh, roads, rail, bridges, ports. But I think the real question is, what's the next act? And, you know, what I'm looking for is what is China going to do to retool the Belt and Road Initiative around green tech? Uh, and new energy infrastructure and supply chains that control critical minerals at the source, perhaps uh, invest in processing on site where they're digging some of those minerals. And look, the U.S. is behind the eight ball when it comes to a lot of the sort of critical mineral infrastructure and the green tech. And, and China is going to press advantage there. And I think we're going to we're going to see that. Look, they've gotten really good at building EV infrastructure in China. What better way to juice their own automobiles in third markets than to go in some of these places under a retrofitted BRI and start to build EV infrastructure there that BYD and Xpeng and NEO can use to sell their automobiles? So, you know, I think the U.S. government is going to have to get really serious here about what we do in the critical mineral and the green technology space because China sees advantage and I think they're going to press that. Go ahead then and make your points about NVIDIA and what we heard today uh, with the United yeah, States so sort of I, tightening these restrictions in the chip space. So there's one piece of this, and of course this is a 600-page document that many of us have not gone through thoroughly, but one thing that did stand out to me with respect to NVIDIA, and that's the notification requirements that are put in place, particularly if a company, and largely NVIDIA, decides to design that just below the existing threshold. So if you'll remember... Uh, Tim, the A800 and the H800 
was produced right after the uh, last October's uh, restrictions. That those chips are targeted now, and there's a notification requirement put in place that says you need to notify the administration if you intend to design that below that threshold again. So I do think that that is significant. I understand Nvidia's point, but this notification requirement I think could be a game changer. I, I have to agree with you. By the way, no one throws a fastball high and tight with more grace than Dwardrick. Um, so I, I, you're, you're right. And, and as it relates to their China business, part of my call here is that I think it, you know, the U.S. is really what this is about right now. And, and so um, U.S. entities don't have any issue adopting. You're right, though. I mean, they, they, they will refit and reformulate to get inside of what's needed to be done. And China will find something to, to knock them down with again. Right now, the story from Vidi is not about China, I guess, is my view. But Anything on China, I'm listening to Dwardrick. He's our guy. <laughs> well, then, speaking of Dwardrick, we talked a lot about uh, Putin being there in China right now. I mean, what should we be paying attention to from a market and economic perspective when you have a leader like Putin there with Xi Jinping? Well, I'll tell you, you know, right now, China is Russia's main lifeline. And, you know, Putin is getting the red carpet rolled out for him. But I think just underneath the surface, there's one person on that delegation that I think we should pay attention to, and that's Alexei Miller from Gazprom. So as you'll know, you know, Russia has been desperate to get the Chinese to approve power of Siberia too. this gas pipeline running out of Russia into China. We thought we would get an announcement when she visited Moscow. The Chinese have been holding that back. Perhaps there's leverage. Perhaps there's something there. But I think we should uh, consider a lot of discussions happening while Putin is on the ground about trying to get uh, power of Siberia to up and running. I don't think that there'll be an announcement during this trip, but certainly his presence caught my attention. Hmm. There's a lot going on in that region. Dwardrick McNeil, stay close to us. Keep us updated with what you're seeing and hearing. Thanks very much. Stuart, what you. is your take on, on all of this? There is so much to talk about with what's going on in China and its economic trading partners. Well, I think from a China perspective, it was, it was a China reopening trade earlier in the year. I would say the single thematic that's performed the worst that we track is China tourism and China reopening. So from an equity perspective, that was a trade early, and it is, is definitively not the trade now. Um, in terms of long term, like, like everybody's aware of the geopolitical risk. I, I don't think that that's anything new. I think what you've seen over the last couple of years is, is actions, both regulatory and other, from China have made Western equity investors very, very cautious about having risk on. They've done it through indirect ways like luxury in Europe, which has also gotten, uh, you know, gotten taken out, out back recently as well. So I think from my perspective, the Western equity investors just extremely cautious about having exposure to China. You see that in terms of the performance of those stocks. Um, as far as NVIDIA, you know, I agree with Tim. I, I don't think people are investing in NVIDIA for, you know, two generation ago chips that are getting sold into China. <clears throat> you know, the, the view on NVIDIA is it is one of the few identifiable, pla identifiable places in AI that actually makes money. So if you are bullish AI, it, it's sort of a must hold. And I think that kind of puts a little bit of a floor under the stock. And I would expect it to probably, you know, recover as we go into earnings. Switching gears a little to other people in China. Yeah. Karen, Tim Cook is in China right now trying to, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, make some headway with those iPhone sales. What do you make of that visit? Well, trying to make some headway with the iPhone sales. Yeah, yes, definitely. I mean, he's like a rock star there, you know. <laughs> um, I think, um, I don't know. You know, the Chinese economy is really hasn't been great. This is a very big, important market for them. Um, the economy is worse than I imagined to you, you know, thinking about that reopen trade that really didn't materialize as the rest of certainly the real estate, the real estate. I don't even know what it, it's a Lehman moment of real estate mm -hmm. there. Um, so I think that 
I don't. I have a very small position left in Apple, more to make me watch it than anything else. <laughs> I am concerned about the China sales there. We were talking in the break about does he carry his actual iPhone? No way. No way does he carry a real phone with data of any kind, and it would be my strong suspicion. It looks like a real phone, but maybe it's something entirely different. I don't know. I'd love to know the answer to that, though. Well, coming up, no vacancy. Wyndham Hotels saying this takeover bid is not the choice for them. The two budget travel names moving today. We'll bring you the details on that next. Plus, Netflix on deck. Is the stock stuck at a pause, or will it stream higher? We'll dive into the options bits for the action. That's ahead. Stick around. More fast in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Choice Hotels unveiling a $7.8 billion takeover deal for Wyndham. Choice has been trying for months to get a deal done, but Wyndham keeps saying no. Today's offer for $90 a share and a mix of cash and stock, both companies catering to budget-minded travelers. Karen, what do you make of this one? So it's interesting. So it revealed they were in talks, but also, to me, the most interesting thing is Wyndham's response, which they called the deal underwhelming. And they choose those words very carefully. It really wasn't a, we are not for sale Mm. at all. It's underwhelming, which means pay us more and we'll do it. Ah, very interesting. Yeah, words can mean everything in this market. So we'll see what happens. Well, coming up, we are rolling out the red carpet ahead of Netflix earnings. A streaming giant reporting tomorrow after the bell. We'll get the scoop on how options traders are preparing when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix is on deck after the bell tomorrow. The streaming giant slumping over 20% since their last earnings report, dropping close to 2% in today's session. Mike Coe joins us now with the action. Hi, Mike. Hi there. So right now, the options market is implying a move of about 8% for Netflix by the end of the week. That's in line with how much it's moved over the course of the last four quarters, although significantly less than the average of the last eight Two of the trades that I noticed, I saw a purchase of the January 160, 121 by two put spread. Buyer uh, bought those 160s 1,750 times and sold the 120s 3,500 times. Uh, that is actually a bet, of course, that would see the highest profits down at that 120 strike. And we also saw a seller of the December 360 calls collecting uh, about 24 bucks and change for those. So not overly optimistic uh, going into the earnings print. Fair enough. We will catch you and see what happens on the other side. Bono, and what do you make of this trade? You know what? I, I think 8% is probably uh, on the cheaper side to pay for option premium, and I think you probably want to be positioning yourself via options. Hmm. I think you're going to be looking at subscriber growth, even though that's no longer the focus. You're going to be looking at ad tier. You're going to be looking at cannibalization of said ad tier. So I think there's a, quite a few moving pieces, and options are probably the best way to play this going into the print. Sure, it's going to be a big talker for us on the show tomorrow. Tim? I tell you, I, I think the stock has lost, it's obvious, it's lost momentum. And if you look at the charts through the 200-day, if you look at some of the dynamics around the new pricing tiers and where they had uh, a lot of uh, positive momentum that came out of, again, the sharing. And if you think about the 100 million of folks that were affected, it's something that I think the stock market is priced in. Streaming companies have not done well. Um, and I think you can buy it cheaper. Interesting stuff. Well, up next, your final trades. It's already time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Stuart, you get to go first. Yeah, two quick ones for me. One, we like Triple Q's upside after November. Uh, macro data has been good. It's the first time we've seen institutional funds buying tech and growth for the first time since the summer, so we think there's going to be some legs there into year end. And then real quick, uh, Middle East, if you're worried about risk there, energy sector volatility has not moved nearly as much as oil has. So I point you to XOP, uh, oil, oil production uh, and producer, uh, exploration and producers, um, if you're worried about kind of continued Middle East risk to the upside. All right, Tim. 
I tell you, Netflix, I think you're going to get it cheaper, and I hope I can get it cheaper, and I think that level's 325. Ooh, Karen. Yeah, a bit of a punt. Buy one-year treasures. And Bono, and take us home. I'm worried about domestic airlines. Save. I think it's probably flying south. Ooh. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.